Welcome to the Bloomberg Surveillance Podcast. I'm Tom Keen. Daily, we bring you insight from the best in economics, finance, investment, and international relations. Find Bloomberg Surveillance on Apple Podcasts, SoundCloud, Bloomberg.com, and of course, on the Bloomberg. The news over the weekend softening the trade war talk was the Treasury Secretary Steven Mnuchin speaking to Fox News on Sunday. We're having very productive conversations with the Chinese. I'm cautiously hopeful that we'll reach an agreement. Jim Glassman with us, JP Morgan, head economist of commercial banking here in New York. Jim, are you cautiously hopeful they'll reach an agreement with the Chinese? Yeah, you know, because obviously we don't like the sound of tariffs. Tariffs remind us of global trade wars from 100 years ago, 1930s. But the truth is, if, if you really look past all the noise, the, the, the real argument here is a beef with China and, and intellectual property rights and technology transfers. I've been hearing that story from businesses for a long time. So yeah. I think what we're hoping is this is part of a big negotiating strategy. And what it's going to do is make China realize they need to work harder to figure out how to how to take care of this issue. So I think at the end of the day, this is not going to spark a global trade war. It's not in anyone's interest. We would lose as much as anybody else would. And I think there's reason to be to, to, to give them the benefit of the doubt that if this actually sets the stage for some real negotiations behind the, behind the scenes and we don't need tariffs, fine. I mean, we, we've already seen many of the steel and aluminum tariffs most countries were exempted from that. There have been big carves out for, for a lot of countries, yeah, a so lot of what nations. Was that about? There, there is a fear, though, Jim, that this negotiating tactic, if you want to frame the approach of this administration that way, um, gets out of control and yeah, that things that go always, wrong and things go be bad. A danger. What's I mean, your base it, case, though, Jim? I think the base case is there's too much at stake here for both China and the U.S. and everybody else. Uh, and it's, it's, it's bizarre to me that after having gone through all this effort to get the tax reform and get a U.S. tax code in line with everybody else, we're going to come along and do something on the trade front to totally undermine that. It doesn't make sense. So I'm willing to, I'm willing to give them the benefit of the doubt that the real goal here is to try to address these violation of intellectual property rights. We've been using you this morning, Jim Glass, to give us great international economics. We had Madame Lagarde on earlier. We've got Peter Navarro coming up. I, I, folks, I'm going to get out in front of this because Dr. Navarro's got some real strong views that many of our listeners, frankly, agree with. Their basic idea off of his books is China's bad. China's evil, and we got to go head-on against China. What's the price of a Navarro approach to China? We all lose. China loses. U.S. loses. John we Farrell loses. Economy, we all lose. Because, uh -huh. because what's going on here is Asia is where half the world lives in Asia. They're going through an industrial revolution. Our industrial revolution benefited 15% of the world's population, Europe and the U.S. What's going on now is benefiting half the world's population. But the thing is, it's not just benefiting them. It's benefiting all of us. Our business community is engaged there. And so if we do something to try to stymie what's going on in Asia, we all lose out. It's all, it's all about future possibilities, future opportunity. And I think that's why you kind of, to my, to my mind, you kind of have to look past. I can understand why politicians don't like to do this. But there's going to be a lot of abuses. When, when you have large countries growing rapidly, yeah. rising, there's going to be abuses. And I'm sure the Brits complained about American businesses stealing technology yeah. in, in the old days, a couple <clears throat> of years ago. This is just what happens. And I think that uh, over time here, 
as the region rises, we're going to find out that there's so much benefit for all of us. But Jim, are we to sit here and say that it's okay for one nation to cheat, even if they're the second biggest economy on the planet? It's okay for them to cheat because the status quo still benefits us? Yeah, I think everybody cheats, frankly. And it's a question of, I think it's not surprising that when China is growing so rapidly, I remember the complaints about Japan in the early days. They were copying a lot of processes here, doing them better. But I think as countries mature, they realize that it's important to respect the rule of law and intellectual property rights because Chinese will be inventing things as well. So I think, I think it's, it's hard for politicians yeah. to do this, but I think if you think about the big picture, what lies ahead, there's so much possibility coming for a world. And honestly, I don't think we can stop it. I think when people are poor and they found a way to make it happen, I mean, it's interesting to me that Chinese love American Is, products. Do you agree with, with Brad DeLong and Danny Roderick and others that the heart of the matter here is we, we had an agreement with the American worker that if we did globalization, you'd somehow be compensated for the loss of your blue-collar manufacturing yeah, job in North Carolina. That's Where the failure. That, that's, that's the failure, That's the right? failure. We all failed. We, <clears throat> so we, we, we economists tend to look at, I, I really think the problem for the guy in Ohio and, and the guy working in the auto plant is automation. We saw that coming and we think, well, that's the great. That's the way it always is. And we forget that it's disruptive and people lose jobs and they lose opportunity. And I think the failure was not working harder to find alternatives for people and helping them get skilled up. And then a lot of that work used to be done by unions. Yeah. So we don't do that anymore. To be care clear in your wonderful PowerPoint you put together and then all the work that J.P. Morgan does with the Kasman team, what is the mix of domestic economic growth near boom and the foreign dampening that comes from large ex large imports, lesser exports? You know, it's it's really hard to tell because – our exports have risen a huge amount too. So what that means is um, if we could somehow close the trade gap and not yeah. harm everybody else, we would probably be able to, there would be more jobs here. But the problem is this process of letting free trade open up, even though it means trade deficits, it's also creating new jobs. And so it's uh, difficult to know exactly. And I think that's the problem for most Americans. They see the jobs that might have migrated to Michigan, I mean, to, to, to Mexico or to yeah. China, but they can't see the jobs that are getting created by this globalization that's happening around us. If the world, if the, the problem is, it's not a zero sum pie. The world's pie is growing. And so we are an important part of that. And I think, you know, the, the, you look at how the U.S. economy is performing. We're doing really well now. We're back. To, we're close to full employment. The big challenge has been for people who are yeah. working in the industries where well, automation is displacing routine work. Jim Glassman, uh, thank you um, so much. Greatly appreciate it. <laughs> he charges in with hostile intent for over after over. He even races back to his mark with unrelenting purpose. Wagner took just three wickets in the match, but one of them critically with his last ball before dinner was that of Stokes. John, let's do cricket for like 30 seconds. We're here with the Council General of the United Kingdom. And sir, you're appalled. Is it an international incident that Australia tampered the ball and England can't beat New Zealand? Is this like international? Is this risen to an international event? 
Uh, no, I don't think it has. I think the ball tampering is pretty appalling, but uh, I can't put it better than the Australian Prime Minister. And as for us losing to New Zealand, well, there's a second test soon. And as I once said before on Bloomberg, at least the baseball season starts soon. There you go. Um, in baseball, can you, tam- can you tamper with the ball in baseball? <clears throat> oh, we call Yes, we call that a spitter. Spitball. And a spitter used to be legal. And then it was made illegal. And now you can't do that And you anymore. would sit in the backyard and practice it. And right. then your father would cuff you across the head and say, if you do a spitter in Little League, you will not eat for a week. Interesting. I wonder yes. if um, Anthony Phillipson would prefer to talk about cricket or, or Brexit politics. Um, Anthony, in the United Kingdom, this conversation about the city of London, improved equivalence, I think, is, is the jargon for, improved for the equivalence? improved equivalence. Is that right? What is that? So I think I would take us back to uh, the the Chancellor made a speech in the City of London uh, on March 7th, where he set out in some detail what our uh, our proposals were for uh, the the new relationship between the UK and the EU in the area of financial services and talked a lot about uh, a system of reciprocal regulatory equivalents uh, with a degree of common supervision, common dispute resolution mechanism, uh, et cetera, et cetera, all designed to sort of ensure that as we remain engaged, which is our ambition, there will continue to be sort of the necessary degree of financial stability yeah. assurance in both directions. So if you're a bank in the city of London and this is the agreement, are they going to get the certainty they need? Well, I think they will, and maybe in, in two regards. First of all, uh, one thing that they will get through the implementation period uh, is certainty and clarity out to December 2020, by which time we will have the new partnership uh, ready to come into place. And then if we achieve uh, our ambition, as set out, as I say, in the Chancellor's speech, but also, I would say, reflected in the guidelines that the Council, uh, the 27 member states meeting as the Council on Friday, uh, issued to the Commission, then I think we'll be in a good place. Is it up for the Europeans post-2020 to just decide on a whim whether there is equivalence or not? Well, that's why I think we need this uh, this mechanism that has both sides with a, with a stake in the discussion, because we need the certainty and we need yeah. uh, we need both sides to have the necessary certainty uh, in order to uh, to provide that assurance going forward. It's become very very difficult to to <clears throat> make an agreement with the Europeans at a time when the United States is pushing for agreements, new agreements from from almost everyone. Has Brexit politics and and making trade agreements got harder over the last weeks and not easier? I don't know. I'm not sure it's a it's a binary sort of one way or the other. I mean, it's a very fluid uh, situation. International trade has always been quite fluid, I would say. Uh, the UK, ha- we have our objectives with regard to the EU. We have our objectives reg- with regard to the US, and we'll gear up for and pro- drive momentum towards as we as we prepare and then leave uh, the EU. Uh, and we'll continue to sort of push in both directions at once. How do you sell exports in the United States? How do you get us? To, I mean, you, you want us to buy hardware and all the fancy value-add stuff, but how do you get those cookies they have at Harrods as you go in and you go back three rooms? How do you move more of those in the United States? Well, uh, one thing I would point out is that we've been quite successful at this uh, for a while. I mean, the U.S. That is our single true. biggest export market uh, across a whole variety of sectors. How about that blockade um, we put up against the Confederacy in 1863? That worked out. Well, we all learn lessons from history. Yes. Um, so, as we look forward, uh, I think the, there's actually one thing I would say. In Washington last week, we did with our colleagues at USTR and, and Commerce, uh, set up a really uh, good and sort of successful SME dialogue. And the, the reason I mention that is because... 
even before we leave the EU, there is so much that we can do to continue to help UK companies export to the US and US companies export to mm. the UK. And some of it is just sort of explaining to each other how our systems work and what the benefits are of being in each other's markets. Well, what's your reciprocity headache right now? The president goes mental about China reciprocity. We have an issue. What's a product in the United Kingdom where the United States is all bent out of shape about reciprocity? I think, if, okay, if I had to pick one, I probably would say that one of the things that our companies wrestle with are things like uh, federal and state-level procurement rules. Um, you know, there are okay. things that are a, a an impediment to trade and investment between us, and those those are the sorts of things. Now, I'm believe right. me, I'm not saying that I expect the U.S. to sort of remove their procurement rules entirely. It's one of the reasons why we encourage sort of U.K. companies to invest here, and then they become effectively sort of U.S. entities and and can uh, can embed themselves okay. in the local economy. Um, I mean, another report we did recently uh, is we, we mapped by congressional district the exports from those districts to the UK and the US jobs that rely on them. Yeah. And we're talking hundreds of thousands. The statistic we like to use is that every day a million Brits yeah. go to work for American companies and a million Americans yeah. go to work for British companies. Consul General, thank you so much. Mr. Philipson is with the United Kingdom and Consulate uh, General offices here in New York. Joining us now, Peter Navarro. He is assistant to the president for trade and manufacturing policy and has been a lightning rod of debate and criticism uh, as we have moved to a new trading strategy. Dr. Navarro, wonderful to have you with us uh, right now. Your arch critics would suggest that you and the Secretary of Commerce, Mr. Ross, are immune to the game theory, the responses that are made to U.S. action. What will be the game theoretic response of China to the events you have proposed and now the actions we see from the president? Well, Tom, good to be here uh, with you. Uh, first of all, um, we're not in a world of game theory. We're in a real world, and we have, as we're speaking, efforts by the Secretary of Treasury, Steve Mnuchin, and Ambassador Robert Lighthizer to continue uh, to engage uh, the Chinese side, which we've been doing since day one of this administration, seeking to address a couple of things. One is the massive trade imbalance we have with China, which costs us factories, jobs, wages, and the like. But also this pernicious practice of the transfer of U.S. technology and intellectual property to China, not just through theft, which most Americans understand that China engages in, uh, but also through this pernicious practice of what's called forced technology transfer, whereby an American corporation which goes to China to try to sell into that market right. necessarily must be a minority partner and surrender their technology. Okay. This is unacceptable. Well, it's so unacceptable, we're, we're, we're but, but, but Dr. Navarro, there seems to be a shift in discourse and rhetoric here. We went after aluminum and steel. We backed away from that with all sorts of trading partners, and now we're going after a tariff theory to then go after the intellectual property debate. Why do we need to screw around with tariffs if the real issue is to go after intellectual property and force technology transfer? Uh, Tom, let me first address the uh, the aluminum and steel because because the way you dismiss that uh, I think is is uh, doesn't do justice to the situation. Um, what we've done with aluminum and steel is impose tariffs across the board, uh, and for a very temporary period, 
uh, through May 1st, we're giving a select number of countries the opportunity to negotiate uh, a better deal that will be in the interest of national security. But, and this is a big but, Tom, the proviso is going to be that any country that uh, does not be subject to the tariffs have a uh, quota or some other strict restriction so that we can maintain the defense of our aluminum steel industry. So there's no letting people out the door willy-nilly. This is a very calculated, important strategy for the American people. With respect to your question of how to address the Chinese problem with respect to intellectual property, it's a two-pronged strategy. One, tariffs. The other is investment restrictions, which Secretary of Treasury Steve Mnuchin will be unveiling uh, in the not-too-distant future. Why do we need tariffs? The reason why we need $50 billion worth of tariffs is because that's the harm that China does to us annually. You can think of it as a uh, compensatory damages, and it is quite damaging, and it doesn't even take into account the hundreds of billions of dollars that have been estimated to cost the American people annually from other types of transfer like cyber theft. So tariffs to recover damages, investment restrictions, basically focus on what is a a very large pool of Chinese money coming into the United States and Mm -hmm. targeting strategically uh, key technology industries, not so that they can make a rate of return like you and I would normally do in a free market, but they're doing that for strategic purposes to enhance their military security and their economic security at our expense. uh, If if you're just joining us, folks, Peter Navarro with us, Assistant to the President for Trade and Manufacturing Policy, and we're thrilled to have Washington join us right now, Bloomberg Daybreak in uh, uh, 99.1 FM, uh, Washington as well. We welcome all of you worldwide and across this uh, 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 nation. Peter Navarro, what's the common ground of Peter Navarro with Lawrence Kudlow? Oh, Larry, uh, Larry's a very good friend of mine. We go back uh, more than a decade when, when I was on him, uh, was on his show frequently. And, uh, yeah, but he's a free trade guy. He's going to tell you, stop well, it, China's not evil, so, that there's a joint price to going after China. Where's going to be the common ground with so, you, so with let's, uh, Mr. Yeah, let's, uh, let's step back and, and look at this <clears throat> four-point program for the president's, President Trump's brilliant economic plan is Deregulation, check that box with Larry and I. Tax cuts, check that box with Larry and I. Unleashing the energy sector so we can have low cost for our manufacturers and consumers, check that box with Larry and I. When it comes to trade, Larry has been quite vocal about the China issue. He has said, as we all have in this administration, that China basically needs to become a free trader, not an unfair trader. And so a lot of common ground with, with Larry Kudlow and I uh, on the China issue. But having said that, it's going to be great to be in with the president and well, have discussions where there's different points of view, Tom. That's, uh, if you didn't have different points of view, yeah. you wouldn't have a reason. And, and, I, and I will suggest this, Dr. Navarro, you and I have known each other for well over a decade. You came and adv- advertised with your books. Now, The Coming China Wars was one of your most successful books. You have a chapter in there, Made in China, the ultimate warning label. Are you going to change with your policy with a president that label made in China? I don't understand that question. What well, my with, job with, here, hang on, Tom. What my job here in the White House is to create manufacturing jobs for the men and women of America 
doing the best things I can and providing the best possible advice I can to the president. And he gets advice from many different quarters. He, President Trump, this is his vision, right? He is his own man. He listens to I will agree with that. That's true. What, and, and how can to, you... To, to think anybody that, <clears throat> that I, I am somehow be able to push him in one direction or another, that's silly. He just wants advice. Is, I give it okay. to him like others. Is his vision... But Dr. Navarro, is his vision for a mercantilist America? Absolutely not. Tom, we are free traders. We are free traders. But what the president has said is that we have a structural problem in the global economy, massive trade imbalances, which are fueled by unfair and non-reciprocal trade. And the president Trump's vision, which is brilliant, is to restructure the global trading environment in a way where trade is fair and reciprocal. There's no reason why the United States has to face higher tariffs when it sends its cars to China or Europe than those countries in that block does when it sends them here. It's silly. I mean, if you want to sell, sell a car from Detroit to China, you pay a 25% tariff. If they want to sell a car from Shanghai to here, it's 2.5%. Yeah. And when you try to sell a car to Europe, you have a similar kind of a disadvantage. It's, it's not quite of the same magnitude but it's very significant. That's not fair in reciprocal yeah. trade. And, and Tom, I mean, look, do, do you think that China should be stealing our IP? Of course not. Do you think that they should force American companies? I, but I would suggest respectfully that in the last not. two weeks, Dr. Navarro, we have conflated a tariff debate with an intellectual property debate. Let me do this, Peter Navarro. We want to continue this conversation, and we can do that by bringing in my colleague, John Farrell. John Farrell with Peter Navarro, Coast to Coast. Dr. Navarro, we spoke before, of course, and you've identified a problem that I think most economists would agree with, and that's China has cheated the international system. I think there's a real debate about the approach at the moment, about whether this approach actually brings China to the negotiation table or forces China the other way. How confident are you that this actually brings them to the negotiating table? Well, they're, they're, we are already at the negotiating table. Uh, as uh, Secretary of the Treasury Steve Mnuchin said over the weekend, he and Ambassador Robert Lighthizer actively engaged with the Chinese side, and we have been engaged with the Chinese side uh, since day one of this administration. Remember, uh, in April, there was the Mar-a-Lago summit. Yeah. Uh, then, a uh, hundred days later, we revisited these issues, and all along the way, we've been talking. But the problem is, talk isn't cheap with the Chinese side. It's been very expensive. And the history of dialogue with the Chinese precisely over these issues dates back to 2003 and the Bush administration when the Bush administration in, instituted these annual dialogues with the Chinese. They went on for every year right up until the Trump administration. And all of this happened is the deficit with China has swelled and they just keep stealing our stuff and forcing the transfer. And if anything, it's gotten a lot worse. And when you have the American Chamber of Commerce and the European Chamber of Commerce, and Capitol Hill, yeah. and everybody else in between basically saying the same thing, that China is taking advantage of this country, we have now a president with the courage and vision to basically address that situation. Dr. Navarro, I don't disagree with you. I think that's exactly where we're at. People on Wall Street yeah. who have acknowledged this problem for years 
but never come up with a solution. I don't want to have the debate about whether there's a problem or not, because most people listening to this program agree with you that there's a problem. The Treasury Secretary over the weekend says he's cautiously hopeful we'll reach an agreement. Can you tell me what we're cautiously hopeful for? I, I want to talk about the results you expect to get in, in the coming weeks and months. What are you looking for, Dr. Navarro? Well, it's not what I'm looking for. The president has said quite clearly two things. One, he'd like to see a $100 billion reduction in the trade deficit this year. And he would also like to see a China which respects our intellectual property rights and basically uh, becomes part of a global trading system where we have fair and reciprocal trade. I mean, this is <laughs> not too much to ask. I mean, but look. We have a trade deficit in goods with China that's soared now to $370 billion a year. By some calculations, $1 billion of a trade deficit due to unfair trade practices basically exports 6,000 American jobs to China. If you, if you just tally that up, that's over 2 million jobs, good manufacturing jobs, we've sent offshore to China a year because of that deficit, and it pushes down our wages. I mean, we, since right. China joined the World Trade Organization, let me just give you this statistic because it's stunning. Since China joined the World Trade Organization in 2001, their economy has grown from $1 trillion a year to $12 mm-hmm. trillion, 800% growth rate, where we went into a, an era of basically the new normal 2% growth rate when the previous five uh, Yeah, but come on. Days, we're, we were come on. We're, but we're coming off of a hugely larger base. Dr. Navarro, John B. Taylor of Stanford University and Paul Krugman of Princeton don't agree on whether the sun comes up in the east, but they both <laughs> agree that Navarro <laughs> economic... Yeah, they don't. I mean, good morning, Dr. Yeah. Taylor listening yeah. out in Stanford and Paul Krugman listens yeah. every day. Okay. But they both agree that Navarro economics is flawed. How do you respond to the laureate from Princeton and the gentleman from Stanford that invented a lot of our monetary economics when they say Navarro economics is wrong? How do you respond? It's quite simple. Uh, I'm of the belief, the strong belief based on analytics, that trade deficits and trade imbalances create unemployment and low wages in the United States. And in doing so, they threaten our manufacturing base and defense industrial base. And I'll tell you this, when I wrote that book you referenced earlier, The Coming China Wars in 2006, everybody accused me of hyperbole, but right now it's the conventional wisdom. So I would say Mr. Taylor and Mr. Krugman need to stop looking in their rearview mirror and start looking at what reality is. Uh, it's ironic to me that the American people as a whole are much better economists than a lot of people in my professions. American people understand that they're getting hammered by unfair and non-reciprocal trade, which is why they elected a visionary and courageous okay. leader in President Trump. So if we wander back it's to simple. 1812 and David Ricardo and we look at comparative yeah, no, we're, we're advantage, I mean, but OK, so you don't want to go forward with a David Ricardo. I understand. I, I get that. Well, but, but, Tom, but what's going to be what's the comparative advantage of China? The comparative advantage of China over the rest of the world is they steal our stuff. They have sweatshop labor. They don't respect any kind of environmental laws and they engage in massive subsidization of their interest industries and they use their state-owned enterprises as weapons not to earn rates of return but to capture industries have we conflated like then i go back that's to my ri- ricardo I, I go that's true i go back to my original 
idea, which is we've conflated a tariff discussion with what you just mentioned, which is technology and intellectual property theft. There's no, everyone agrees that's going on. But if we conflated the two into an ugly trade war where they will respond to what the president does. Well, here's what I, what I well, this is really important. What I'm about to Please. say, I think everybody needs to stop talking about trade wars and trying to push up these tensions. If you look at what happened, for example, with the tariffs that were imposed on solar panels and washing machines in January by the Trump administration, we had no trade wars. What we had was a significant influx of new foreign investment coming in to build American factories and allow American workers to make those products. What we've had with the steel and aluminum tariffs, besides the, the stout defense now of our aluminum and steel industries, is we're on the verge, it looks like, of having an historic renegotiation of the Korea trade deal uh, in a way which will both preserve the mm -hmm. integrity of the defense of the aluminum and steel industries and put an end to that awful trade right. deal. So, I, if, I mean, look, you're, you're on Bloomberg. You're talking to investors. If I were to kind of look at the chessboard as an investor, all I see is green lights for growth, tax cuts, deregulation, cheap well, energy, got... rebalancing of the trade. What, it, 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 every, every economic indicator that you're going to report this month is right. going to be strong enough to chart. Doctor... So, Oh, yeah, go ahead. I'm going to run out of time. Dr. Devaro, one last quick question. Can you support that we redo and join the new TPP? Should we get back on board TPP? The president, in a historic decision, literally his first business day in office, got out of that agreement for one simple reason. As it was structured, it would have been a death blow to our manufacturing sector, particularly to our auto and auto parts industries. So uh, the president has said repeatedly, we will negotiate with any country uh, a trade deals that are fair and reciprocal and defend our manufacturing defense industrial base. And I would not presume to put words in the president's mouth other than what he has said himself. Dr. Navarro, thank you so much for the spirited conversation. Greatly appreciate it. Peter uh, Navarro is President uh, Trump's uh, uh, assistant to the president, rather, for trade and manufacturing policy. John, I hope I wasn't too rude there. No. I, I, you would have been more gracious than I was. Or, or not. We uh, attempted to find at least one of our guests who actually read The Spy Who Came In From The Cold, and that would be Jim Hurtling, <laughs> who joins us now from London as well. I guess the spies are coming in, Jim in different cities, back and forth, Russia responding quite seriously here in the last 20 minutes that they will uh, respond to what they call a provocation. We've seen this before, but, but Jim, have we seen a coordinated effort before? Well, we've seen a coordinated effort in the form of, of economic sanctions a few years back. And what's interesting about this is that it's being 
you know, the, the, the press release and the announcements are coordinated, certainly, but you'll recall it was at the EU summit a few days ago, it, there was hardly unanimity about cracking down on uh, on Russia. The, the, the Greeks and the, the Italians certainly uh, expressed some skepticism, and, and you know, Alexis Tsipras in, in Greece, you know, made a point of, of congratulating Putin on his re-election and staying on the phone with him for some time. So... Um, you know, we've seen we've seen yeah. uh, sanction, we've seen punishment before. Uh, you know, the markets certainly seem relatively nonplussed about it. So, well, you know, we shall see. Lisa, here's a, a tweet out from Richard Haas, a frequent guest. He's the president of the Council on Foreign Relations. And Ambassador Haas, let me quote it entirely, Lisa. Decision to expel Russian diplomats less than optimal or creative, as will likely lead to Moscow responding in kind. Better to choose asymmetrical response, i.e. targeted economic and travel sanctions, increased public diplomacy versus Putin, etc., so that costs fall mostly on Russia. Although this goes to something that Jim said, which is, the U.S. is coordinating with the European Union and sort of displaying this support that we haven't seen to such a degree uh, in the Trump era. I'm wondering, Jim, how much is this being viewed from the European Union angle as being a huge vote of confidence in them by President Trump, uh, regardless of whatever the reaction is or whatever he should have done, perhaps, diplomatically? You know, it's seen as certainly a, a welcome vote of confidence but as we've seen with the Trump administration when it comes to Russia for the past few months, uh, 18 months, as long as he's been in office, uh, it, it has, there hasn't uh, always been a lockstep movement between the president and his own administration in terms of foreign policy, in terms of how it, how it behaves towards traditional friends Wait, and on. foes. Hold on a second. So are you suggesting that this move to expel 60 Russian diplomats came from someone other than President Trump and that he could potentially take actions to uh, undermine that in the upcoming days? No, no. No, no. This certainly seems uh, um, like it was a unified move by the administration. But, you know, as we saw as recently as last week, when his own uh, uh, White House leaked that he ignored uh, um, instructions not to congratulate Vladimir Putin, he has continued on the on one track to try and 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 so um, strong personal relationships with with Putin, um, regardless of what the national security apparatus says and does. All right. So what's the next step uh, that the European Union is preparing for, girding itself for from Russia? Well, it'll be a, probably a tit for tat. The uh, um, the Russians will probably expel some some European, uh, quote unquote, diplomats, stroke spies. And then they'll probably settle in to, to until business returns to normal again, because yeah. the economic ties are, are pretty profound and they go both ways. I, I mean, and it always comes back to the the natural gas uh, debate. It gets cold in Europe, last I knew, and they provide the heat, don't they? I mean, that's the ultimate diplomatic constraint is the heating of houses in Europe, right? That's right. And the U.K. in particular um, didn't. You know they rely on on capital flows, international capital flows, Russian capital flows into their money management industry. We just saw last week our our colleagues here in London did a, a terrific story about pointing out that you know these UK money management firms and in fact Salisbury where the the uh, poison attack took place, mm-hmm. their money 
is invested through their money managers. Their, their money is invested in, in Russia, yeah. Sberbank and Gazprom and Russian sovereign bonds because, uh, you know, they have to be. And let me do a quick market check here, particularly after what we saw Thursday, Friday. We welcome all of you worldwide. Jim Hurtling with us, James Hurtling off our London desk with Lisa Abramowitz and Tom Keene. The Dow rather up 407 points, almost to 24,000, 23,937. And you see it with the S&P in f- up 41 points, 26. 2.9 on the S&P 500. The VIX comes in 2.6 big figures, 22.29. With yields up, it's a higher yield yeah. environment. Risk on all the way, Lisa. Well, we should just point out too: we're seeing huge gains in some in some uh, in some tech names. Microsoft up more than five percent. Even Facebook shares gaining. So you have to wonder: oh, it's now down. Uh, it started the, the day uh, up, but you can yeah. see, you know, uh, Alphabet, for example, also uh, seeing some uh, firmness. So it's just sort of interesting: a reversal in fortunes from. Yeah. from from, uh, last week. Uh, Jim Hurtling with us uh, here as we look at uh, this, these Russian headlines as well. Jim, help with free trade. We talked to Peter Navarro this morning and Christine Lagarde, obviously two very, very different views there on trade. How is the Trump trade policy playing as you see it across the London and European desks? Well, here in Europe, it's certainly uh, there's certainly some relief that they seem to have have dodged the bullet. But you know, when it comes to Trump and foreign policy, there from Europe, um, probably confusion is the best word. They don't really know where he's coming from, and and you know, sort of his his madman theory of foreign policy seems to um, <clears throat> be how it's how it's seen here. They never know which shoe is going to yeah. drop and which Trump you're going to get. Sounds like New York as well. Jim Hartley, thank you so much. Greatly appreciate it. Uh, one of our senior editors in London with uh, decades of perspective in Europe out of Paris and uh, London as uh, well. Thanks for listening to the Bloomberg Surveillance Podcast. Subscribe and listen to interviews on Apple Podcasts, SoundCloud, or whichever podcast platform you prefer. I'm on Twitter at Tom Keen. Before the podcast, you can always catch us worldwide on Bloomberg Radio.